Lorena Fano. This morning, I am really excited to be here and to, to bring this, this message. Because this morning, we are diving back in to our series, Transformed, uh, where we as a, as a church have been going through uh, these last, the last half of, of John, uh, looking at uh, Jesus' ministry to his disciples, and uh, in the last few days of his life, his death, now his, we, we come to his resurrection. And truly, if there's any, uh, ever a, a topic which is, is, is to, be, to be greeted with excitement and uh, as, 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 part of a, as part of the church, it is today's theme, transformed by resurrection. And, uh, the, and, and I'm really excited about how John describes what goes on with, with the resurrection and Jesus' appearance but I'm also really excited that actually he's given us uh, some really good take-home key messages. And in particular, as we go through this morning, I'm going to introduce you to five simple words that I think can transform your life. I'm going to introduce you to five words that I believe has the ability to transform your life completely. So, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is a key, is a key doctrine in Christianity. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the key moment where he announces his supreme authority over death, hell, and the grave. Throughout Jesus' ministry years, he had made the most audacious claims. He had spoken and made claims like no other religious leader had ever done before. He, he claimed to be the very Son of God. He claimed to have deity. And Jesus Christ hinted at this in, the, in his powerful powerful uh, speaking and the way he taught. People heard him uh, speak and, and went away and say, no other person we've known spoke with such authority. He demonstrated it in his life of perfect love. His, his life was the embodiment of, of love and mercy mixed with justice. He confirmed it by his miracles, and we've dealt with that before, how in his miracles, Jesus confirmed that he was the son of God by demonstrating his power over nature, by demonstrating his power over, over sin, by demonstrating his power over disease, by demonstrating his power over death itself. He, he declared it all. But ultimately, Jesus Christ seals the deal. Jesus Christ confirms beyond any doubt that he is indeed who he says, the very Son of God, in the act of resurrection and rising again from the dead, defeating it for all time, the power of the grave on our lives. So central is the doctrine of, of the resurrection that Paul says, if Jesus Christ didn't rise, our faith is useless. 
and we are to be pitied. The doctrine of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is essential and, and, and a firm foundation on which, on, on which we can build our lives. And it's interesting that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was known to be a, a, a significant uh, claim of Jesus by the Pharisees to the point that they put guards. But it's interesting, as you read the, the accounts of the resurrection, the Pharisees may have been guarding against it, but the disciples, they had no idea what was going on. Let's jump into today's passage. Today, we're going to be looking at John chapter 20. And John chapter 20 breaks itself, uh, verses 1 to 18, and, and the, this passage breaks itself down into two sections in our Bible. But the reality, yes, there are two sections, but actually it's all part of one beautiful story that John scripts for us. So if you've got your Bible with you today, uh, you can turn with it and read with me. Uh, the words will be up on, on the screen for those who, who don't have it, but, but um, I encourage you just to, to open your Bible or, or the app before you. And let's start reading then from John chapter 20. Just the first few verses, couple of verses to start with. It says, Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one that Jesus loved. And by the way, that's just how John refers to himself throughout all this, the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. Uh, so came running to Simon Peter and, and, and John. And they said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. Now, can I just make us pause there for a moment? Look, it's very easy to read these words about the resurrection from our position of knowledge. We know how this all plays out. We know the story that is about to unfold this glorious Sunday morning. But I want you just to pause and think for yourself what it would have been like for Jesus' followers and his disciples that Sunday morning. For it's quite clear in the Bible that they had absolutely no idea that Jesus was going to rise from the dead, even though he had said it. It's almost as if his, his audacious claims were just so far beyond anything that they could comprehend. It just hadn't sunk in. But to them... This was a dark moment indeed. Friday was a dark time. Their leader, their teacher, their rabbi, the Messiah, had been crucified and died on a cross. Friday may have been dark. I imagine Saturday would have been darker still in the silence of the aftermath. As Jesus had died on the cross, as far as the disciples and the followers had got, were concerned, they had lost all hope. Their hope of, 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 um, of having a deliverer was gone. Everything that they had hoped for in the last few, few years following Jesus Christ was crushed on that cross. And you can only start to imagine it 
uh, to me, I think it would be, you know, as if, the, as if their whole life had just been ripped apart, as if a, a giant hand, as it were, had sort of come down out of, out of heaven and just tore their, their heart in two. And everything looked completely bleak and black. And I imagine if it was you and I, and I imagine the disciples would have been the same, that there would have been a lot of tears shed over Friday night, Saturday, Saturday night, and I imagine not much sleep was going on. So I imagine that's why it's still early in the morning when Mary Magdalene and the other woman go to the tomb. But I love the way that John starts this passage because right from the beginning, he hints at a new way. He hints that a new era is dawning. Because when he describes this day, he doesn't describe it as on the morning of the third day, which it was. He describes it as on the first day of the week. Because in Jewish practice, the first day of the week signified the ending of, of the Passover feast. The Old Testament feasts and things like that finished at the, in the morning of the following week on the Sunday morning. And so John here, right from the beginning, hints at the beautiful story that was about to unfold because this is something new that was dawning this morning. It is the beginning of a new week. It is the beginning of a new era. And as we'll see, it is the beginning of a new way in which people relate to God. Sorry, I just need a drink this morning. The second point is that Mary, that one, Mary Magdalene plays a key role in John's account of, of this. In fact, Mary Magdalene plays a key role in all the accounts as well. In John, John specifies just Mary Magdalene, but we know from the other accounts that there are other women with them. We know that, that Mary was there. We know that Salome was there. We know Joanna was there. And they say, and other women as well. There was a, a large number of women following following Christ at that time, and they were going together early that morning to prepare uh, with, with spices prepared for, for Jesus' body. But when they get there, the unthinkable had happened. The stone of the tomb had been rolled away. And this was certainly not expected. The woman's first response was the logical one. They've come in the night and they've stolen the body which is what they report to, to Peter and John. Mary says, we don't know where they've taken him. The logical explanation is that the Jews or the Romans had come during the night and had taken the body of Jesus away. And so Peter and John take off to the tomb. So Peter and the other disciple, John, started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Sort of quite, 
quite funny reading this. I, I imagine in my mind, I don't know how you guys do this, I imagine putting people into these various stories to try and comprehend. And I, and I imagine Peter would be more like a prop forward, more like the Joe Moody. Yeah, he can run, but not particularly fast. But, you know, John, John I, I think, is, is obviously more of a, a Ben Smith sort of mold who, who actually was made to run. Uh, so I don't think that there's any major theology in it other than the fact that uh, they were running at different speeds, to be honest. Um, <laughs> and that's, uh, that's still very true today. Um, so anyway, John gets there first, and he bends over, and he looks in at strips of linen lying there, but, not, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. And good old-fashioned Peter, Peter style, isn't it? I just love Peter. You know, you know the other, everyone else is standing around watching, wondering what's going on. Peter says, no, nah, I'm in there. You know, so he bullishly charges on into the tomb to find out what's happened to, to Jesus' body, to find out what's, what's happened to his, his Lord. Peter saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, John, had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. And in parenthesis we've got here, they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. It's fascinating as, as, you, as, as you get into this passage and you start reading behind it, we, we find so often that the English translation only gives in part what the Greek words were that were, were describing the scenes. And in this scene here actually is a beautiful play on three different top forms of look. It's a beautiful progression of look, looking and seeing that we lose completely in our translations. When John arrives at the, at the tomb and he looks inside, he has a bleepo. It's, it's, it's literally to look and see. It's sort of like a, oh, that's interesting. When Peter goes in there and he says he saw the, the, the linen there, that's actually a completely different form of looking and seeing. He is a thorero, which is basically where we get our word to theorize from, to think about, to mull it over, to look carefully and wonder and think, what is going on here? This is, this is, this is, this is, something's going on. And then the third form of seeing is when John follows him inside and he says he saw and believed, and that's horeo, to see with comprehension and understanding. And it's beautiful, actually, when you see that, because that is so often the, the picture of people coming to faith in Christ. It's not always that way, but it's often that sort of pattern that follows. That they hear about Jesus Christ and think, oh, yeah, that's interesting. And then they one day say, I wonder, could this be? And then finally, coming to faith is saying, actually, no, this is right. I comprehend, I understand what is going on. Three different forms of looking. But what did they see? And this is actually really, really important. Because the reality is, even though your, your passage says the empty tomb, the reality is it was the not-so-empty tomb. And it's actually a really important point. Because when they got in there, the tomb wasn't empty. The linen was lying there, 
And the Greek used to de de describe the linen lying there is, is, is a word that, that, is, that, that implies for, for things to be nicely put in place. Everything was in order. Everything was nice and tidy. So the linen was lying there. So in those days, obviously, when people, when people died, they, they were wrapped in linen and spices, laid on their back, and then their head was wrapped quite separately, often with a turban, and then some more that came under the chin to keep the chin up and stop it sagging down. And then they had a burial cloth, which was often just laid over the top. But everything, as, as, as Peter and John looked at it, looked nice and tidy. Everything was in place. The body linen was there. The head linen was separate. But the body was gone. And that's really key. And as Peter puzzled, and as John comprehended, they would have understood that if there was a theft of the body, they would have taken the linen as well. If they had just taken the body, which no one surely would be after a few days then it would be a big mess. They also would have realized that if this was a resuscitation and not a resurrection, those linen were not going to be lying there. If it was like the raising of Lazarus from the dead, Jesus had to order people to, to unwind him to take all the linen off because it was, it was all wrapped around him and, and unbind him, Jesus says. But if that had been the case, if Jesus has just uh, been been resuscitated up, then the linen would be in a mess on the floor and everything would be, be taken off that way. But it wasn't. It was all laid out perfectly on the bed because what had happened to Jesus Christ was not a resuscitation. This was a resurrection into a glorious new bodily form, something never seen before. It's almost as if his, his body had, had vaporized and gone through the cloth and left the cloth in place. Everything was beautiful and in place, but the body was gone. And this is the moment that, um, that John started to believe. John Stott explained it this way. His body was transformed into something new and different and wonderful. This wasn't a, a standard body that he got. This was a, a, a new, glorious, resurrected body. So what did John believe when he said uh, he saw and believed? I think this was the moment when it actually really sunk into John, that Jesus Christ was who he said he was. John has written this whole gospel of John so that we would know for sure that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. He wrote his gospel so that we would know for sure who it was that we were following. And I personally believe that this was most probably one of those key moments where he said, actually, yeah, now I get it. He may not have believed that Jesus was rising in bodily form because the next parenthesis says that they, they still didn't know that he was rising in bodily form. But I imagine this was the point that he said, actually, God has resurrected his body. God has taken his body. Jesus Christ is who he says he was. He is the son of God. And John believed. The interesting thing is that in the parenthesis, there's a little word in there saying the disciples did not realize that Jesus needed to rise from the dead. And because this is absolutely true, because Jesus Christ had to rise from the dead. He had to rise from the dead simply because he proclaimed it. He said he was going to rise from the dead. And so if he didn't rise from the dead, then he was going to be a liar. 
but far greater than that. He had to rise from the dead to prove once for all that, that his sacrifice was holy and acceptable before God. If Jesus Christ had died and remained dead, we would never know if he was a spotless, perfect sacrifice. We would never know if a sin had sort of crept in there somewhere. But we know for certain that his sacrifice was holy and acceptable to God because he rose again, conquering death, conquering hell, conquering the grave. And this is declared in the resurrected body of Jesus Christ. Paul writes, Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and he was raised for our justification. I love how some of the authors get carried away when when they start writing about about what it means to to serve a risen risen king. And this this quote here from from Kent Hughes is full of exclamation marks. And anything that's full of exclamation marks, you can can imagine his his enthusiasm as he's writing this. And he says this, a living Christ is an all-powerful Christ. A living Christ is a present Christ. A living Christ is a Christ who gives us life now. A living Christ is a Christ who gives us life in eternity. And a living Christ is a Christ who gives victory. Richard Phillips says, The Christian faith is never a belief in the dead letter of mere doctrines. The Christian belief is never the belief of of, of mere doctrines. It's not the belief of mere words on a page. Much less a reliance on dead legalism of self-righteousness. Saving faith is a relationship to a living Lord and a saviour, and the experience of a heavenly power for righteousness, peace, and joy in the, the Holy Spirit. The Christian faith is a relationship with a living Lord. And with, armed with this knowledge, armed with the fact that John saw and believed, we read in the next verse, the disciples went home. I'm astounded by that, aren't you? Actually, I'm not too surprised, though, because I know, mate, These are blokes, and blokes are just, seems to be the worst at communicating sometimes. So armed with this belief that John has just had, they head off home. They obviously don't stop and tell the woman, who are left there mourning at Jesus' grave. If if, if John just understood what, what God had done in the resurrection, he certainly didn't tell anyone Because the very next verse, we find Mary Magdalene crying at the tomb side. And it's not just crying. The word used to describe the crying there is a deep warning. It's it's the wailing of of death that they had at Lazarus' tomb. It's that deep wail that comes from way down. It's a a sobbing that she had. And let's pick up the story. It says, now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize it was Jesus. Now, I don't know about you guys, but if I looked in and I saw two angels there, I would most probably be saying to myself, something funny is going on. Eh? You know, you, you think this is, this is beyond the realm of normality going on here. Something supernatural is taking place. 
But it's interesting, Mary was so upset, so torn apart by by the death of her, 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 her by the death of her, her Lord Jesus, that she couldn't even start to process this together. She was so torn apart. I guess, I guess, just like the, the ears, uh, the, the, the ears, the tears well up in our eyes, and they affect our ability to see when we're crying. I guess that's a state of mourning too. When we think that life has fallen apart and everything looks black and bleak, and we just start, we, we, we forget to actually open our eyes and look around. And sometimes we find that perhaps Jesus is standing there. And so they say to her, Woman, why are you crying? They try and wake her up to, 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 to what's going on. And Jesus says, to Mary again. Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking it was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. I promised you five words that would transform your life. Five words. And they're the words that Jesus adds to uh, the, the why are you crying statement. Some of the versions like the NIV will say, uh, who is it uh, you're looking for? Or to whom do you look? Others ver- other versions say, in a sense. So it's who are you looking for? Who are you looking for? Why did Jesus say that? Surely he knew. He knew that for sure. So why did he bother asking Mary? He asked Mary because although she thought she knew who she was looking for, she really had a case of poor vision at that time. He was saying it because in the midst of sorrow, it is easy to lose sight of what's actually going on around. He, he says it to, to wake her, 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 her up to exactly who she was looking for. You see, Mary was busy looking for the body of her crucified Lord in the tomb. But that's not where he was to be found anymore. And sometimes... When life falls apart, sometimes when everything around you just looks black, sometimes when you think that God has let you go, sometimes when you think that, 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 that they're all around is just blackness, it's then too that we have to be reminded of who is it you're looking for? Who is it really you are looking for in life? Where are you getting your satisfaction from? Because in the midst of sorrow, it is very easy to lose our sight. But there's something, uh, something also incredibly profound about what he says here. And it has to do with the very first word, who. Now, if you and I were to, to ask someone about what they're looking for in life, we use the what. What are you looking for in life? Are you looking for security? 
Are you looking for purpose? Are you looking for peace? Are you looking for love? The beauty of Jesus' response, Jesus' question, is he actually opens our eyes to the deep truth that the, the answer to life's biggest questions lie not in a what are you looking for, but in a person, a who are you looking for. Jesus' simple statement opens our eyes to the fact that actually it's not a what we're looking for in life, it's a who. It's in the person of Jesus Christ that we do find our peace, that we do find our security, that we do find who we were supposed to be. It is in the person of Jesus Christ that we do find that we are loved completely, that we do find that we are accepted completely. It's in the person of Jesus Christ that we do find that life exists in its fullness. And it's not in a what, it's in a who. Who are you looking for? Jesus says to you and I today. Because the reality is of the resurrection is that Jesus lives to be found. Who are you looking for? He asks us. Because I am alive and I am well today. And I am here to be found. And the Bible makes it so clear that when people look, earnestly look, he will be found. That pe when people earnestly want to seek and to see, God is no longer going to veil himself and hide himself from them. Because in Jesus Christ, we have a living Savior. And Jesus lives to be found one of the things that I like to do when I'm reading the Bible is I like to insert myself into the story and think about how I would respond because often I think it brings to light understanding about what was going on. One of the things I thought about is what if, what if, what if I was Jesus? What if I was there? The stone had rolled away. The tomb was empty. I had defeated the cosmic powers of evil in the universe. I had put to death death. I had completely destroyed the hold of sin. And then I turn up there at the tomb. You know how I pictured myself? I pictured myself something like this. <laughs> like a superman. You might, you might laugh, but I imagine you would be doing the same. Just think for a minute. You've just saved the universe. You can imagine your eye there would be there saying, hey, hey, I'm the man, I've done it. And you can imagine us sort of bursting through in, in some sort of superhuman costume or something like that to, 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 to be all about us. But isn't it stunningly different how Jesus chooses to respond at that moment? When you look at what Jesus does, there's no superhuman, wow, look at me. In fact, Jesus is more concerned about the broken-hearted follower that he has before him. He's more concerned about tenderly picking her up and mending her heart. 
He's more concerned about, about, about a disciple who was struggling with life at that time and was feeling lost and abandoned. And so in this time of, of, of where he could be, you know, where he's just demonstrated all this power and, 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 and saved the universe, as it were, he chooses it to tenderly care. to tenderly draw her near and calls her by her name, Mary. Let it not be lost either that Jesus chooses to reveal his risen body to Mary Magdalene. Just like when Christ was born, the, the news was heralded not to the wealthy, not to the religious leaders, but to the shepherds on the hills. So again, Jesus chooses not the religious leaders, not, the, the, not even the, the, the leaders of the disciples, but the women who are following along. In those days, the, the, the witness of a woman wasn't even submittable to, to a court of law. If you were to write this, you certainly wouldn't have included that in, if, 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 if this was all made up. But Jesus chose a personal approach to a broken-hearted follower. What are you looking for? Who are you looking for? Because the what will only be answered in the who. The beautiful reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ as Jesus lives to be found and he cares so deeply for the brokenhearted. He cares so deeply for us as individuals that he will call by name and he longs to have that personal relationship. But it's even better than that because Mary, Mary uh, falls to the ground and grabs his, his feet. It's described in, in, other, in other Gospels. And it says, Jesus says to her, don't cling on to me. Don't hold on to me, for I am yet to ascend to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am descending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them all the things, all these things. And she told them that he had said these things to her. These verses are a little bit difficult, but what Jesus is trying to say to her is, is, is that she saw him in bodily form and she wanted to cling on to his bodily form. And Jesus said, Hey, a whole new era is dawning here. It's great that you've seen me in bodily form, but don't cling on to this. Something better is coming. I'm going to ascend to my Father. And he hints at what is coming at the day of Pentecost when he's going to return in his Holy Spirit. And in so doing, he's going to go from just being in a body to, to a spirit that actually lives within us, that takes home within us, that, that, that comes and lives in, in the life of, 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 of all the believers. And he says, there's a new whole relationship going on here. You go to the disciples, but he doesn't call them disciples anymore. He doesn't call them followers. He calls them my brothers. 
Because the beauty of a risen Jesus Christ is we are brought into an intimate relationship with God where we are actually brothers and sisters of Christ. We are actually, Jesus is our bro. It's it's a level of intimacy and relationship that had never existed before. And Jesus said, tell them, I'm going to go to my father and your father. That same intimate relationship that we've seen through Jesus Christ and the relationship that he has with his Father, that same sort of walking with him, talking with him, doing life with him that we see and then we read Jesus' life and think, man, I wish I had a relationship like that with God the Father. And Jesus says, all of that is yours because he's my Father and he's your Father. He's my Abba, he's your Abba. You're my brother and sister. This is a whole new era of relating to God that is, that is dawning this day. This is, in, in, in real effect, the beginning of the new covenant that God has, a new way of relating with, with people. No longer is, is the covenant of the law uh, needed because this is a covenant of grace. This is a covenant sealed through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so Mary got to say the best news ever. The ultimate news she was able to tell to the disciples. I have seen the Lord. See, everything that Jesus has said, everything Jesus said is true. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus' death has atoned for the sins of believers. Jesus has conquered death, hell, and the grave. And God can be found personally. Isn't that just the best news ever? that she got to say that day when she was able to recount all these things. And the beautiful thing is, this is exactly what Jesus says to us. He says, go tell. You have with you the most beautiful news. You have with you the most beautiful news that the world needs to hear. That God can be found personally. That Jesus Christ has paid for it all, that he is the son of God. And his command to Mary is the same as command to us. We need to go and tell the best news ever. So I wonder then, as we pause and as the band comes up to to lead us in the last couple of songs, I want you to think, Who is it you're looking for? Who are you looking for? Five key words. Ask it when you're feeling down, when you're feeling as if life has just been ripped out from under your feet. Ask it to yourself when you're in the depths of sorrow and despair. But I challenge you also, ask it to yourself when you go to work tomorrow. Ask it to yourself as you prepare breakfast. Ask it to yourself as you, you uh, have relationship with your, 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 your children or your, or your parents. Ask it yourself as you Interact with those you you meet on a daily basis, your workmates, your neighbours. Who are you looking for? Because the reality is that Jesus Christ is the answer 
to life's greatest questions. And if we can have that little phrase foremost in our mind, it will transform how we interact. It will transform how we interact with our Father. We will bring Him into everything that we do. It will transform the way we interact with everyone we touch on a daily basis. Who are you looking for? Jesus lives to be found.